Welcome to the Codependent Me Podcast. I'm Tamara Shaw, a recovering codependent, a codependent life coach, and the co-author of God Turned Mommy's Wine Into Water. This podcast was created to increase the awareness of codependency and to give a more holistic look at the journey and healing of codependence. Welcome to the Codependent Me podcast. I am your host, Tamala Shaw. Today, we have Amanda Blackwood with us. She is an author. She is an artist. She's a public speaker. And she is a trauma recovery mentor. She has so many gifts. Even, you know, I wish you guys could see her. She's beautiful. She she just has she's glowing right now. And um, I just want to say thank you for being on the Codependent Me podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much, Tamala. I'm really honored and very happy to be here with you. Oh, I'm so, so grateful. Um, we met on Podmatch. I tell everyone it has been I've just met the best people on Podmatch, so I'm very grateful that you guys reached out and we were able to connect because we're going to talk about. Um, well, I'm not going to. I'm not going to give it away. I want you to tell your story and tell people what we're going to kind of get into. But it is something that is very dear to my heart that I want to get more involved with, as well as get more um, focus on the podcast in helping with this particular trauma. So if you don't mind, tell the audience a little bit about yourself. So I live in Denver, Colorado with my amazing husband and our six, yes, six cats. Hello. <laughs> cats. <laughs> cats. I love it. But this wasn't always my life. So I grew up in a really abusive household, as most people who went through my specific trauma often do. Mm -hmm. um, the earliest memory that I have of uh, any kind of abuse was when I was about four years old was being molested. Mm -hmm. um, I grew up with a father who was physically abusive. My mother was mentally and emotionally abusive. My brother was my molester. Wow. That was all of my immediate family, I was the youngest in the household. So I grew up around all of this abuse. And uh, I learned it through all of this, that the people who love you are going to hurt you. And if they don't hurt you, that means they don't love you. Yes. And that's, it was such an ugly thing to learn. <laughs> that's so unfortunate, because like you said, you know, your especially your immediate family, right? That should be your protectors. Especially right. at four years old, my gosh. And to to have that particular abuse such a young age, it just completely deteriorates what's supposed to be. And then right. you have to unlearn and relearn, right? Mm. right. So not that I want to get too deep in the molestation, but did your parents know? No. Okay. I, I don't believe they knew. There was an opportunity where I think my mother could have been suspicious of mm -hmm. what was happening, but I don't think she had fully wrapped her brain around it yet. At the because time. Or you couldn't. Right. I couldn't understand it. I, I All I knew was that my brother was really my only friend. 
and I couldn't get him in trouble. Right, right. And he was only seven. The fact that he was doing these things means more than likely he had things done to him. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. So looking back, I also know that I can't blame him for what happened. He absolutely blames me and tries to swear up and down that he doesn't, first of all, he doesn't remember any of our childhood. And second of all, he would have never done such a thing. But how can you say that if you don't remember? Right. And then not remembering is such a common trauma reaction for young boys. Yes. 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 There was something going on and I don't know where it was coming from. Mm, That's so unfortunate because he's got pain that he doesn't even know about yet right right um right okay okay um so oh see that's that's just a whole nother podcast right there <laughs> i could just dig all into that but um so your parents as you got older how did you deal with the whole molestation portion of your life i began really acting out a lot Mm-hmm. Um, I had behavioral issues. My mother was convinced that we were both uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder children. And they took us into the doctors and the doctors told my mother that I was fine, but my brother had ADHD. So they gave him Ritalin. My mother did not trust or believe the doctors when it came to me. So she started giving me my brother's medication when I was four illegally. Oh, When it was five, she took me off for a few days and took me back into the doctor. And I was a five-year-old going through a drug withdrawal. So yes, of course, I was pinging off the walls and they gave me my own prescription. One of the things that I've learned recently is that 95% 95 of ADHD cases diagnosed in the 1980s, which this was 1984, 1985, this is a symptom of sexual abuse or trauma that they were treating with Ritalin. Wow. 95% of the kids put on Ritalin in the 1980s had experienced abuse of a sexual or physical nature. Oh my goodness. That's, that's a lot to wrap. Yes. Wrap around my head right now. That is, so that was just their way of. They were treating the symptoms. Right. Absolutely. Ooh. That's, that's big. That's big. So you were four-year-old, a four-year-old that had been sexually abused, illegally placed, you know, put on on Ritalin, given Ritalin. I was given speeds. Right. Exactly. And then your mom was cognizant enough to know that if I take her off, it's going to make her bounce off the wall. So I'm going to take her to the doctor then, and then they'll see what I'm allowing them to see, what I've made. And right. then they gave you your own script. Yep. Okay. So to manipulate the system. Jeez. How long and did that, that is? Oh gosh. I was on it until I took myself off at 15. I started running away from home and didn't take the medication with me. Mm. But I mean, it, what a great example of, I mentioned that my mother was emotionally manipulative and abusive, mm-hmm. emotionally and, man- and mentally. It wasn't just me. She would manipulate her entire environment. My father is to this day a victim of her manipulations. I guarantee it. I haven't talked to them in many years. My brother, me, even the doctors that put me on the Ritalin were victims of her manipulating them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh my goodness. So you ran away. Well, you 
you started running away (laughs) frequently. (laughs) And, and what happened then? I, you know, I floated around for a while. Every time I would end up out of the house for a little while, I would end up getting dragged back. I typically did not go back on my own ever. The police kept on taking me home or my parents would come and find me and take me home. Uh, eventually when I was 17, I was put into foster care. Well, 16, almost 17. I spent my 17th birthday in a foster care home. Okay. The police came and picked me up again and told this family, I had become very close to these people. I went to school with their kids and they told them, well, it looks like she lied to you guys. Um, there was no sign of any kind of abuse and we're taking her home now and you can do whatever you wish with your relationship with her. And they never spoke to me again. Because they thought you lied. Right. They thought I had lied and manipulated. And guess who really had? Right. Mommy. <laughs> Mom did it. Oh, my goodness. So you're back at home, 17. Just right. how frustrating could this be, right? right? You're seeing all of this. You're knowing the manipulation and no one will really listen because she's good enough to really make it work. Oh, absolutely. One of the other parts that a lot of people didn't realize is that during my preteen and teen years, the molestation continued not by my brother, but by a stranger in a video store rental parking lot by, um, gosh, he left me terrified of men for years by a, a teenager in a swimming pool and a public pool. Oh, by an uncle um, by marriage. Uh, it was, it was repeatedly, mm-hmm. I was being treated as a sexual object and I had been since I was four years old. So you didn't really know any difference. Right. So it wasn't, um, I mean, I'm sure it, it felt appalling, but it also at the same time felt normal. Right. Um, that's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so, and so unfortunate. Like people don't understand because you just think, oh my gosh, you should have kicked, scream, hollered, scream from the top of the hills, blah, 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 blah. But there is, especially when it starts so young, there is a normalcy yeah. to it, right? Um, so unfortunate. Oh, my goodness. I also um, tried my best to be a little bit of a drama queen at the time, too. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I would, like, uh, flinch whenever somebody would raise their hand around me at school. Don't hit me. And I, I've seen that in a movie. Think, right. Right. Mm. it was a cry for help it was me not wanting to say somebody please help me I need you right yeah but rather me saying look notice look at yeah notice that I'm flinching when a child that is not abused may not right right so pay attention to the signs right and unfortunately there are so many signs that are overlooked so many times oh my gosh that's just very, very sad. So when did you finally get out of the house? I left two days after I turned 18. Okay. I immediately, my father gave me a ride to the airport. Hmm. And on the way, he told me, your mother and I were talking last night. She said she gives you th- six months before you come crawling back to us. And I said, I give you three. So at that point, I knew I was determined to make it on my own. I wasn't ever coming back. I didn't care what happened to me. They were not going to be my resource for any kind of comfort or help. 
Yeah. I would rather be homeless than return to them. Amen. Oh my gosh. So where'd you go? Where'd you move? I went from there down to Arizona. Okay. Uh, the year previous, I had run away with three other kids in a little two-seater car. And we went down to Arizona and I met some people and decided that that's where I was going to go and live. You liked it, right? Okay. Right. Okay. Good stuff. Yeah. So what but, was the plan when you got to Arizona? It was all for a guy. Um, <laughs> as things like this, when you're 17 yes. and being treated as a sexual object for most of your life is. It was for a guy. I was going to move down there and we were going to move in together and we were eventually going to get married. He turned out to be an alcoholic. Mm. And the first time he ever hit me, it was an open hand slap against my leg. And this was after him knocking many, many holes in the walls. And mm. I knew eventually that if he was going to hit me on the leg, even open hand, that that wasn't going to be the end of it. I grew up with my father being physically abusive. I wasn't going to put up with this too. That you know so, Right. So I moved and I moved and I moved and I moved. Basically, I was a drifter. I was homeless. My name was not on a lease anywhere. I had no stability. I was sleeping on people's couches or floors just for a place to go. Mm -hmm. But no matter what I did, I always had a place to go. I made sure of it. I manipulated the situation because I learned from the best. (laughs) (laughs) And eventually I fell in with Um, a man who was more than twice my age. Mm -hmm. He was 38. I was 18. And he decided one day for his buddy's birthday, he owed his buddy a favor. And that favor was going to be me. Now, this was the first of three times that I was trafficked. Oh, my gosh. Oh my God. I didn't even know what it was. This was back in 1998. So human trafficking wasn't a phrase that we typically used. And if you did, like you would think it was on a movie, something happening in Europe, right? Like right. it's right. <laughs> just, yeah, absolutely. Completely, completely get that. Yeah. Right. That's not something that happened here. Right. Yeah. 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 This was in Arizona. This was in Phoenix. In fact, uh, this past April was the first time I've ever returned to Phoenix outside of somebody else sending me there for work. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually went to speak on a stage at a church and I talked about my experience. It was weird being back. (laughs) I bet. bet. Yeah, I bet. So this man, when he loaned me out to his friend, uh, his friend took me to Las Vegas for a birthday weekend. And my original thought was that during that trip, when I was 17 and we ran away and we went down to Arizona, we stopped in Las Vegas and I got to ride the roller coaster at the top of New York, New York. And I absolutely loved it. I was so looking forward to going back and doing this again. Mm -hmm. And that's why it was presented to me was I was getting this all expense paid trip to Vegas. I'm going to go and enjoy myself. Mm -hmm. And what really happened was we checked in at the now closed uh, Hard Rock Hotel. Mm Yeah, And the people at the front desk were paid extra money to not ask questions. Really? They were um, given very specific instructions. I was allowed to have room service once a day. And they had to bring the room service up to the door, knock and leave. Mm. They could not be there when I opened up the door to be able to retrieve the food. Mm. And he was going to make sure that everybody was very, very well tipped for complying. And for 52 hours. Uh, it was a repeated cycle of he would go downstairs and drink and gamble. Then he would go up, come upstairs, assault me, mm. eat something and pass out. And this was repeated over and over and over again. 
52. I went through, yeah, I went through horrible things. And I was told that if I left the hotel room, I didn't have a key to get back into the room. I would be on my own. He had my, my ID card at the time to be able to get me on and off the flight, which is something that people definitely should be watching for is somebody else being in control of the other person's identity. Absolutely. Um, I, if I had left the room, I wouldn't have had any ID with me. I wouldn't have been able to really go to the police and tell them what was happening. I would have not been able to get back to where I had been staying to collect any of my stuff. I would have been homeless on the streets of Las Vegas. And if I wait and I just went through what it was that I had to go through for 52 hours, then I could at least go back to where I knew people and try to find somebody else's couch to sleep on mm -hmm. rather than just being completely thrown to the wolves in Vegas. Wow. So I put up with it. And I told myself, you know, one of the most dangerous phrases that you can ever tell yourself when you're going through trauma is I've been through worse. I can get through this too. Because it leaves us set up to believe that eh, I can just put up with it. No, you shouldn't have to put up with it. You're going through trauma. You have the option to be able to put a stop to this. I could have walked out of that room. I could have gone to the police, but because I thought I've been through worse, I can get through this too. And my material possessions were more important to me mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because I had been through worse. Mm -hmm. It wasn't worth it. It's almost like the unknown. I yes. know what's going to happen if I just hold on. Right. I know I can get back, but I don't know what's going to happen. If I walk out, that is people, like, people are more afraid of having hope than having a guarantee. Oh, 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 people are more afraid of getting help than having a guarantee. Wow. You know That's what's coming. Big. That's yeah. big. Yeah. So, hmm. That is why, so, you know, we have all of these different things that, um, you know, like I told you earlier before the show that I've done some work uh, with human traffic um, programs and things like that. But that's why they always tell us the biggest place to pay attention to people is in a hotel. Yes. You know, um, and if you don't mind, because I'm pretty sure you know a heck of a lot more than I do. What are the, what are some of the signs that people need to look for? Definitely the big one is somebody else controlling identity. Mm -hmm. So when you're traveling through an airport, when you're checking into a hotel, if somebody else has control over a passport or over an ID card, that's a good sign that that person is not trusted with their own identity. And you have to ask why. Mm -hmm. If that person is a special needs person, it can make a little bit more sense. But even right. then there are things that you can do to make sure that that person has control over their own identity. Mm. If there is a perfectly functioning young adult or adult who does not have control over their own identity, this is a major red flag. I cannot scream that enough. Yeah. You've got to pay attention to this stuff. Another thing to watch out for is somebody who's refusing to make eye contact. It can be a sign of something like autism. Mm -hmm. But in most cases, it's the sign of somebody who is being abused. They're afraid to make eye contact with you. And there was an instance in my last event of trafficking where I finally understood why that was. Now, and we'll get into that later. But it's, it's terrifying to have somebody look at you and look at you like they know you 
when in the midst of all of this, you don't even know yourself. Wow. Oh, that's big. That's big. Okay. So can you tell me about another time? I, I just want people to understand that we always, you know, we have some people have in their mind that it's this big drawn out Broadway musical that slips you into um, human trafficking when that is not the case. It's not the case. And I mean, I've heard of someone that actually went to lunch with someone. They thought they were going on a date. And when they left that date, they were being human trafficked. It was that serious. They took their identity. She had gone to the bathroom. And when she came back, he had taken all of her IDs, credit cards, everything out of her purse and told her, this is what you're going to do. I know where you live. If you don't, this is what I'm going to do to A, B, and C. Either you do it or it's going to be consequences. And that's how she found herself in that, right? Um, so can you tell us about another time where this happened? Because I just want people to, to get the big picture. Hey, good people. Have you discovered that you have codependent characteristics and you're not really sure what to do with that? Well, I suggest that you go out and grab my workbook. It's called The Codependent Me Workbook. You matter and your story matters. And it really walks you through healing from codependency. Talk about your goals, boundaries, detachments, bunch of journal entries, all the things that you need to get started. You can pick it up today at Amazon. Thanks so much. Bye. So my second time of being trafficked um, isn't too far off from that story, actually. Mm. I was 19. I had I had already left Arizona. I had moved to Florida trying to get away from everything. I just wanted to escape and start my life over. Yeah. Um, I had injured myself on the job working at a horse farm, and I needed to get knee surgery done. So my plan was I was going to go to Florida and stay with my dad's mother, my grandmother, mm-hmm. while I got the knee surgery done, and then stay there until I recuperate and then move on. I already had another job lined up. I already had a future apartment lined up. I knew exactly where my life was going at that point. I was 19 and I saw success on my horizon. I was ready for it. And I finally got all the way there. I had $5 left to my name. I was sitting in the Daytona Beach bus station. It was about 1030 at night. And I had her phone number, but I didn't have her address. And this was 1999, so I didn't have a GPS. And I called her up to say, hey, I'm here. I'm ready for you guys to come and get me down here at the, the bus station so that, you know, I can come back with you and we can get the ball rolling. Yeah. And her husband answered the phone, my dad's stepfather, and said, we're not coming to get you. You're on your own. Good luck. And hung up. No. I didn't know for a long time that my parents, primarily my mother, had called them and told them she's running away again. And if you take her in, we'll never speak to you again. So their alternative, their option was to leave me on the street, homeless. And I sat down on the curb and I was sitting there just bawling my eyes out. I had no idea where I was going to go, no idea what I was going to do. And a young couple had just gotten off another bus and they found me over there. And they came over and they started talking to me and trying to find out what was going on. He was 22. She looked 18. She was actually 15. And this couple 
uh, had a place of their own. And they told me, you know, it sounds like you're going through some really hard stuff. Come back with us. We have a room that you can have all to yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can stay there until you get on your feet. And what they really meant was they could, I could stay there until they found the highest bidder. Right. Because that quickly, they sold me to a guy named Esteban. Oh my gosh. Was locked up in a small room for 23 and a half hours with no food, no water, no bathroom facilities. And back when I was a kid growing up in the 80s and 90s, there was this really popular TV show on called MacGyver. And I mm-hmm. watched mm-hmm. it religiously. Oh my <laughs> gosh. Was I in love with Richard Dean Anderson? Oh. <laughs> to some degree, because of all of this, I still am. And I've written to him and his fan club to tell him what he did for me. And I've never gotten a response, but I have to trust that he just knows. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but because I watched MacGyver, the man who could fix anything with a paper clip and a rubber band, right. I was able to MacGyver my way out of this room. And I got out. Oh, good for you. It was incredible. After 23 and a half hours, I mean, I was locked up almost long enough to be able to, to uh, file a missing persons report, but who was going to do it? Right. Yeah. Nobody cared. Nobody knew where I was. Mm. And I started to realize after that, how really alone I was in the world and how unestablished I was. I never got the surgery on my knee. And I left Florida. Eventually I made my way out to California because that was as far from Florida as you can get. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> <laughs> and my goal out there was to become the assistant to somebody important because I figured that was the only way that I myself could ever be important. That was that yeah. was it. That was gonna be the end goal. Yeah. And I got all the way out there and instead I was on alias and Will and Grace and I modeled for Harley Davidson. <laughs> these really cool stuff. I mean, it's LA. Who doesn't get into acting when they're LA, right? Yeah. (laughs) Eventually I found my way into the world of being a mall cop. Hmm. Within five months of my starting the job, I had busted open a massive embezzlement ring. I had taken over as the director of security and had taken on several other properties. Suddenly I went from being the bottom man on the totem pole to being in charge of six properties in LA County and running my own staff and revolutionizing the way that scheduling was done for the entire international company. Miss MacGyver, right? Right. (laughs) I figured it out. That's right. (laughs) I found something I was good at. Absolutely. That's wonderful. But it was around that same. Oh yeah, absolutely. But it was still lonely. So it was about 2004 when internet dating became kind of a bigger thing. People started, you know, messing around with that mess. I shouldn't call it that. That's how I met my husband, but that's another story. (laughs) But in 2004 is when I met this man who lived overseas and we bonded. We would have Skype chats and stuff. And uh, I watched his little girl grow up in pictures and video chats and we would he would have breakfast while I was having dinner and we would have a video chat through Skype and we just hang out and get to know each other. It was like long distance dating, but still being across the table from each other. It was a really cool experience. Yeah. And over the seven year period time, we got to really know each other. I went over to go and visit him. He came over to visit me. And eventually we decided that we were in love after seven years And he asked me to get a fiance visa and move to Scotland to be with him. Oh, nice. So I I gave up my career. 
<laughs> so I gave up my career and my car and my apartment. It was the first apartment I ever had where I was the only name on the apartment. Mm. My first ever solo lease. Yeah. And I had, it was the first time I had ever bought a car by myself. I was really proud of myself. I was really starting to establish myself. And I was. That's what I was going to say. You that. were really having your own identity at that moment. Right. Right. Finally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It took a long time to get there. But I was still lonely and still desperately wanted that love. And I didn't Absolutely. feel that anywhere. You know, I hadn't had that experience my entire life. Yeah. It's true. You know, I was, it was what I wanted more than anything. I grew up watching the old black and white movies and the Disney movies. And just like everybody, I wanted to grow up to be the, the princess. Absolutely. I wanted my happily ever after. Yes. <laughs> and if Scotland has it, let's go. Right. <laughs> yeah. It took him seven years to get me there. It took him seven days to start trafficking me. I was 31 years old. And he was a police officer. Whoa. Within hours of landing in January of 2011, he had my passport, my driver's license, my debit card. He had everything in his possession and he said it was for safekeeping he literally he was going to put it in a small safe at the house because he knew crime in the area and with him being a police officer of course i trusted him Um, i had known this man for seven years at this point so i trusted him with everything i trusted him with my life what i didn't realize was as well as um People being able to communicate on the internet, they can also very much show who they're not on the internet. Absolutely. They show you exactly who they want you to see. Yep. So I have to ask, have you told him about your experiences in the past? Because seven years is a long time. Right. He knew some of them. I, I don't know if I ever told him about the first one. It wasn't until I wrote my autobiography that I started opening about opening okay. up about what happened with Arizona slash Vegas. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. But he okay. did know about what happened in Florida and he knew about my early childhood abuse also. Mm. Okay. I was just wondering because most times now seven years is that's, that's a commitment, right? That's right. a commitment to what you're trying to do. Right. But most times it's certain things that they're looking for. So um, that's the reason I asked that question, but yes, yeah, seven, after seven years, you would think that you could trust, but had you guys seen one another? Like had they, yeah. you guys had visited, right? right? So you were going to go ahead and take the plunge, give up your life here in America and go get your man. Right. Yeah, and absolutely. Within seven days, he was sex. Well, human trafficking you. Goodness gracious. Yeah. I moved to the land of kings and castles and thinking that what really was going to be my happily ever after. Mm. I was walking out of Cinderella's home where she's been treated like this her entire life Mm. and going off to go marry the prince. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That man was no prince. Uh, I'm pretty sure he did this to somebody else during the seven years that we were communicating also. Sure. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, that Um, that would make sense. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that he was watching for, of course, was as most manipulative people and traffickers do, they look for people who have 
something lacking from their world and they promise that thing to them and they fill that void Mm -hmm. so that that person can depend on them. Mm -hmm. And once they depend on them and they give up everything else for them, just exactly like what happened in my case, that's when they know that they can do whatever they want. Now they can manipulate you into doing their bidding. Yeah. Yeah. It happened really quickly. So the first week, like I said, the first seven days was bliss. I could go where I want. As long as he took me, I could visit with who I want. As long as it was his family, I could do whatever I wanted. As long as he also wanted to do it. Uh, I was being manipulated. Yes. Oh my gosh. It's so bad. But (laughs) but we all, we, you know, it's when you're looking for that thing, you don't see that. You don't see it. You're just like, oh, he loves taking me around his family. How wonderful. Right. Right. Oh, he wants to be with me. Yes. He wants to be with me when I'm shopping and going around. Let's hold hands. This is fantastic. You don't see what's really, really happening at that moment. Right. Mm. that claim of ownership jeez yeah so yeah go ahead Mm -hmm. really quickly i wanted to get out so right after it started uh but of course he had all my stuff Mm -hmm. so he had a a bit of a habit of drinking he wouldn't say that he had a problem with it i definitely would but i had during all of my travels and my struggles i had been a really good waitress and i fell back on my old waitress training you know waitress at some place like the now closed and gone forever Shoney's a diner you learn not to let people see the bottom of their coffee cup well one night during the abuse when he had guests we called them guests we had guests over I made sure he couldn't see the bottom of a whiskey cup (laughs) by the end of the night he had had so much to drink that when I told him that he gave me back all my documents, I could go to the bank the next morning, get all my money out so that we could spend it. He fell for it. He believed me and gave me back my documents. Mm. And he didn't remember it the following morning. So rather than go to the bank, I did the very next thing that, you know, I could possibly do to help myself. And I jumped on a computer and I looked up tickets to get out of there, to get me back to California. And the first ticket available was something like $12,000. I only had a little over $2,000 to my name at the time. Didn't have much. So I was going to do whatever I could to get out anyway. So I kept on moving out the ticket date a little bit further, a little bit further until I found one I could afford. The first one I could afford was five days away. Mm. And I told myself that same dangerous phrase. I've been through worse. I can get through this too. Rather than leaving here, it was February, I think, of uh, 2011. There were, there was six feet of snow outside. Mm. People everywhere were snowed in. Surely I could have done something to get help, but he was the police. Who was I going to go to? You know, how do I find the help that I need? Mm. So I knew if I just wait that five days and just go through whatever it is that he throws at me, I can get through this. And I'll be out the other side. I know how to get to the train. I know how to get from the train to the airport. I have enough. I had $11 left. So I had enough for the train. And I could walk through the snow to get from the train to the to the airport. And from there, I'm scot-free. I can go hungry if I have to. Right. And they, they, those five days as they were going by, the abuse escalated. And it got so bad that I ended up with a kidney infection. I was in the hospital when the flight took off. And it was a non-refundable flight. 
So I lost it all except for that $11 I had left in my bank account. Mm. He eventually found out that I'd done this and that's when the sport torture began. So I was um, deprived of sleep and food simultaneously. The longest I went without sleep, I believe was eight and a half days. But at that point I was hallucinating so badly that I could get, I, I might have the days off by a day or two. I'm not so sure. So he would keep you awake on purpose. Yeah. Man, it was how that works. Um, loud music, screaming, getting somebody else to do it for a while. He would have guests come over who would pay extra for the privilege of being able to do this to me. Wow. Um, there was one guy in particular who wanted to pay extra to have me in a completely hallucinating, uh, sleep deprived state because he thought it was more fun. I was also waterboarded for sport just to see what it was like. My goodness. So there was a lot of stuff. I was, I was really paying a very heavy price for having purchased that ticket time to get out. Right. Yeah. And I started to really lose hope. Mm -hmm. I lost focus. I lost hope. And eventually I thought I'd lost my will to live. There was one day back then I was a smoker. There was one day I was able to leave the house I couldn't go to anybody for help and there was really no real destination. And I took with me one cigarette and a little, um, oh gosh, I packed it already, a little lighter. And I, my plan was eventually to make it to the train station, but first I had some stops. There was this old church that had built, been built in the 1600s. And I loved the looks of this place. It was right on the main road. Everybody drove past it. Everybody walked past it. I walked down there to that church and I sat in the churchyard for a long time. And the headstone that I was talking to had the date of 1776 on it. Everything else was well worn off this headstone. But 1776 is the year of American independence from England. And that's what I was wanting. So I took it as a sign. And I sat there and I talked for the longest time to whoever that was beneath me. And I kept on praying, somebody, please just see me. Just notice me. Just ask me what's wrong ask me if I'm okay because if you ask me I will tell you yes <laughs> yes yeah mm-hmm. and nobody came so mm-hmm. I got up and I moved over to the steps of the church and I tried the door handle and it was locked and I sat down on the steps and again I sat there and I prayed for a long time please just send somebody to see me. I need to be seen mm-hmm. and nobody came I watched people walk by I watched people drive by and I watch them all have this very similar look on their face of it's not my problem Mm. yeah eventually I finally got up again and headed down to the train station my plan was to sit there and smoke my last cigarette before getting up and wandering down the train tracks toward where the train would be arriving from once I got far enough out I would commit suicide by train Mm. while I was sitting there a man walked out onto the platform and he asked me for a light I gave him my light and I told him I won't be needing it anymore and I said this very purposefully in my American accent (laughs) because I wanted him to ask yes and he didn't ask (laughs) right yeah yeah and instead he just handed it back to me after he lit his cigarette he says I I won't need it either that was it there was the whole conversation and I knew I couldn't make this man care. I haven't been able to make anybody care so far. I was 31 years old and in 31 years, I couldn't make anybody care. 
Mm. And then a little boy walked out on the platform and he took his father's hand. And this little boy looked at me. You remember what I was saying earlier about it's really terrifying to have somebody look at you and see you and know you when you don't even know yourself. Mm -hmm. That's what this little boy did. He was probably about four years old. Mm. And he looked at me with eyes of wisdom far beyond his ears. And I knew that it wasn't the eyes of a child that was looking at me. Scared the daylights out of me, but it also woke me up. I knew that I could not do to this four-year-old child what had been done to me. And that is to strip somebody of their innocence. If I had done to this child what had been done to me, I would have been no better than all the people who had hurt me all those years. Mm. And it took me about 20 seconds to realize that I wasn't running toward the train. I was running back to my prison. And on the way, I was screaming a hallelujah and thank you, God, because I knew that if I was going to be kept alive in that moment, in my absolute darkest moment, that wasn't the end of my story. There had to be more out there. This wasn't going to be how I was going to be taken out. Some nameless, faceless body on the railroad tracks in a foreign country. I was going to get back and I was going to survive. this. That's awesome. That is so awesome. Oh my goodness. So you went back. Please tell me how, how, what did you have to do to get back to the United States? I had to make this man who knew more about psychology than I did. Hmm. Think that I had Stockholm syndrome, also known as trauma bonding these days Mm -hmm. and make him believe that I would do literally anything for him. Then I had to sit down and have a conversation with him and tell him and remind him that my visa was about to expire. And if we didn't get married, that, and if I didn't leave, he could lose his job as a police officer knowing about it. And I could get kicked out of the UK and never be allowed back according to UK law. And we wouldn't want either of those things to happen, of course. (laughs) But if you sent me back, I could go stay on somebody's couch for six months and then come back to Scotland. And be with him forever. Within two hours, I had a round trip ticket to get me back to LA. And it would have gotten me back there in time for Christmas. That's insane. That's insane. My goodness. And so many people believe that just because I was able to escape, that that was the end of the story. Got me. You got me leaned in. (laughs) (laughs) It's so rarely ever the end of the story. And this is why so many people have a hard time leaving dangerous and violent situations is because they know it's not going to be the end of the story. They are going to be hunted. How do you deal with being relentlessly hunted by somebody who has been a professional hunter? in that life they have sought out and hunted you for seven years they are not going to let you go that fast Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. he came looking for me and i saw him through the peephole of my front door banging on the neighbor's door he had my address off by a single number and i was so new there the neighbors didn't know me and couldn't tell him where i was he fought me he sought after me he attacked me He had taken photos and videos of me being raped and molested during these uh, guest visits. Every time I got a new job, he would send an email to my boss with all of this stuff attached. When I made new friends with people, 
he would send this to them. And he would always have something similar in the message saying, I wouldn't want this in my life, would you? Every time he made sure that my face was very visible. Mm. Every single time he attacked me, I got more angry and scared every time. Eventually I wrote to his bosses and they opened up a full investigation, they claim. And within a couple of months, I got a letter from them saying that they saw no signs of any actual abuse. I still have that letter to this day. I did everything I could just trying to keep myself alive because that first year I wasn't sure I wanted to be alive. So I made a bucket list and I started marking things off that bucket list. I can't go until I get these things done. Mm. Every time I got two or three of them done, I'd add six more to the list. (laughs) I did things I never thought I would have the opportunity to do in my life because I had given up living. I drove to San Francisco on a whim and a car that cost me $2,000. There's no way that car should have made it. (laughs) I didn't care anymore. I flew to Paris with a friend of mine I hadn't seen in a very long time Mm -hmm. just to go to Paris. Mm. I couldn't afford that. (laughs) I went to London. I explored. I stayed on the Queen Mary. I went to go and visit friends I'd never seen out of the state before. I I did so many things. That's beautiful. I was just, I wanted to stay alive. Right. Absolutely. So just keep adding to the list to have a reason to stay alive and a reason to keep fighting. That's good. The the worst attack was yet to come. Mm. So he kept on doing this. And eventually I just decided I'm not going to have a good life here in California, no matter what I do. So I left, I packed up and moved to Colorado in 2016. In 2019, I found out that he had done this again with all of the photos and videos. But since he couldn't figure out where I was working, he instead posted everything on a pornography website and linked any and all personal information he could find for me, including social media information, phone numbers, social security number, home addresses for places I no longer lived, any and all last names I had ever gone by, everything that he could possibly dig up on me, he linked. And people were following me because they had seen me in a pornography video being raped. I was Mm -hmm. asked for my autograph one day while walking through the grocery store, and it destroyed me. Oh my goodness. I was right back in that place again. Absolutely. Absolutely. It it just, it, it floors me how a person can take so much of you away from you and it's still not enough. Right. Right. This time he finally dug too deep though. Because that's when he inspired me to start digging deeper. Oh, so what'd you do? Right off the bat, I had no idea what I was going to do. I uh, I lost my job. They found out I was a survivor of human trafficking. They said they didn't need that drama. So they fired me. Oh my gosh. Um, I reached out to an anti-trafficking organization that immediately paired me up with a therapist. I started counseling right away. The first therapist I ever saw, I pretty much uh, traumatized her to the point where she left the industry forever. She's done. (laughs) So they paired me up with another one who was great. But I went into this second therapist's office knowing already what I needed. First time too. But I didn't know how to verbalize what I needed. So Mm. when I went into the second one, I told her right off the bat, I said, Amy, here's the deal. Number one, do not come at me with prescription medication. Been there, done that. I don't want a Band-Aid 
I want a shovel. Right. <laughs> yes. And number two, don't walk on eggshells around me. Don't treat me like I'm some fragile porcelain doll, because if I was going to break, I would have done it already. Hello. <laughs> now let's get busy. Yes. That is phenomenal. So we started digging in about a year and a half later. She told me, well, I'm not sure that there's much else that I can do for you. We'd gone through EMDR. We had done so much. She had got me over some of these really nasty speed bumps. She mm -hmm. said, but I know you well enough to know that you don't end your healing and your journey here. So what are you going to do next? Mm -hmm. And I told her, I said, I think I'm finally ready to write my book. She said, don't you have a few already? Yeah, but they're short and they're not about everything. I want to write my autobiography. I want to write the whole thing. Mm. This was December, or this was November, late November 2020. And she told me, she said, well, Christmas is right around the corner. You know how to reach me if you need me, but let's catch up again in early January. We'll just see how everything goes. <laughs> and she reached out to me in January and she said, okay, so how's it going? And I said, I'm doing good. Great. How are you doing? She said, no, that's not what I asked. How's it going? How's the book? Right, yeah. <laughs> I said, oh, it's done. Mm. She said, excuse me, is this another short book? Said, no. <laughs> Ooh, it's 350 pages. She said, aren't you still working two full-time jobs? Yes, I am. My roommate still hasn't found work. And that's the middle of the pandemic. Mm. Poor roommate just couldn't find anything. Oh. She said, well, how did you manage to write 350 pages while doing all this other stuff? And I told her, I said, when it's ready to come out of you, how do you not Most write 350 thing. pages in a month? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It pours out of you yes. because it's ready. It comes out in its own time. Yeah. I had been denying this book for years. I wasn't ready. I got this other one I'm going to do first. I'm not, not, not going to do it. When I finally heard God's voice telling me, write your book, mm. I could not deny it anymore. Absolutely. You have and to be obedient. Yeah. That is beautiful. So let the audience know the name of the book. That, that is my autobiography, and that is called Custom Justice. It's available worldwide through Barnes & Noble primarily, but you can find it other places too, like my website. That is phenomenal. And I would love for them to hear how many books you actually have written. <laughs> I, as of June 1st of this year, have 13 books. My most recent is actually called, a, it, it's actually a cookbook. It's called Surviving in the Kitchen, Recipes for Life, Love, and a Full Stomach. Oh, I love that. <laughs> Completely so, love it. A month after my autobiography was published, which was published on June 19th of 2021, my 10-year anniversary of freedom from trafficking. Mm. Mm. one month after that is when I met the man that's now my husband I talk about him all the time I talk, tell people how wonderful and patient and kind and just so supportive he is and he's had to remind me a few times now that I'm the only person alive that has ever accused him of being patient but he is with me <laughs> and that's what counts <laughs> so you did so much work to get through all of this trauma to get to your healing and how beautiful, because you, 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 people feel as though when you've gone through certain things, you kind of carry that with you as a weight all of the time. So, and, and you can say this please in your own words, but I feel as though just because it's, it's there, it doesn't mean that it's weight, it's weight, right? It has happened. You are, you have healed from it. It's all, it's, it's, 
when I say it's there, it doesn't mean I'm, what I'm saying is you you don't ignore it because you're bringing it up now, right? So it's with you, but it's not a weight. So there's a lot of people out here that's healing and they have a very, very hard time giving themselves to someone and trusting them. So what kind of work did you have to do to be able to trust your now husband to even start dating? One of the big things for me was to work on my communication skills. I had this habit my entire life of saying, nobody needs to know about this. These are the broken parts of me and nobody needs to know about that. But what we have to understand is that those broken parts help to form who we are, not just in our everyday life, but in our habits, in our reactions to things. Mm. I needed him to know what I had been through and to understand that, yes, there are parts of me that I'm still working on. But I am healed from this. And this is not going to rule my life or my relationship for the rest of my life. Yes. yes. And going through that, having that kind of communication, not only did he, you know, immediately purchase my book and read it. So I made the royalties from the book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he wanted to know. He wanted to understand who I was and where I came from. And after he read my book, he told me, he said, I knew that you were the person that I was going to marry because if you could go through everything that you had been through and come out the other side, still willing and wanting to have a relationship and to have love and to have God in your life and to still want this, I knew I needed a lot more of that in my life. That is beautiful because it could have been a situation where he says, I'm going to support you. I'm going to, you know, get your book. Didn't mean he had to read it, right? right? So how beautiful that he took the time to get to know all of the inner that was going on with you, that you were healing from and, you know, to better know your story, to better see you. That way he knows, to, you know, what questions to ask. It's just something about when someone knows what you've gone through, because there are times where you may have a PTSD moment, something may rise and you just kind of go away. If they don't know you, they may not recognize it, right? But he said, yes, I'm going to recognize it. I'm going to know her so that I can be that support. Ah, that's beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. So I have to ask because it is definitely out here. If there is someone that is being human trafficked that's listening to this episode right now, what advice would you give them? First of all, recognize that not knowing what options you have is the same thing as not having those options. We live in the age of the internet. There are so many resources available. Find them. If you're listening to a podcast, I'm assuming you're already on a smart device. Um, you've got a, a smartphone. You've got a computer. You've got a tablet. Whatever it is, look up National Human Trafficking Hotline. Look up the 988 campaign. 
find the resources that are going to be appropriate for you. If what you're going through, you're not sure if it's human trafficking or not, let them decide. Mm. Call them, talk to them. The reason they start these organizations is because they want to help you. They don't want to leave you out there flying in the wind, thinking that you are completely alone and you're not alone. If you call the National Human Trafficking Hotline, they're going to pair you up with people that can uh, that are known as exit strategists. That's mm-hmm. actually a title I have on my resume. Reach out to me if you need that kind of help. If you call 988, they're going to pair you up with a therapist or a psychologist that has somebody with them with lived experience that can come out to you and help to talk you off the ledge if you're at that point in your life where you don't know if you want to keep going, mm-hmm. just like I was there. These organizations are out there. There's organizations in every state. There are several here in the state of Colorado that I highly recommend and donate to regularly. They're out there. Find them. Oh, and on the other side, if there are people out here that say, you know, this, this is, I want to, I want to help. I want to be there for the people. How can they be a part of the help? A lot of people, especially post-pandemic, are finding that they want to hang on to their funds a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So not everybody is willing to donate money, and that is okay. The organizations that are doing the hard work need things other than money. Right. They need toothbrushes. They need socks. They yes. need random things that you wouldn't normally think of. Call them up and ask them what they need. And if they tell you they don't need anything, they probably don't need your money either. <laughs> That's true. Very true. Very true. Now, I'm pretty sure that, um, like you said, there's so many people because that was the organization that I was working with. That was one of the things. It was a lot of um, supplies. It was a lot of supplies that was always needed. Clothing. Um, I can't, I went in once to pack bags because I gave bags to them when they came in. So I packed the bags with the little totes for them. So it's always something if you are willing, um, like you said, if it's not money, definitely your time is actually more valuable, you know, at this point in, in, in helping. So please, please, please reach out to the, an organization to get that help. Um, so if there's someone out there and they were trafficked and they are on their journey to healing right now, what is it that you feel as though, because you've been there, that they need to do to have healthy friendships and relationships? Because you got to learn to trust again. Right. There's a couple of different things. One thing is that we find ourselves constantly looking for and seeking an apology from those who have wounded us. Mm-hmm. And it's okay to live our lives without that. We don't need that apology. Sure, it would be nice. Absolutely. It would be wonderful to have this apology, but why are we going to put our own healing, our own recovery back in the hands of the people who hurt us in the first place? They don't deserve that kind of power over us. And it's also the same thing with the phrase, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. We've grown up hearing that our whole lives and it is a lie. Recognize it for the lie it is. This was a term, this is a phrase that was coined by Frederick Nietzsche in the 1800s, not too long before he died in an insane asylum. We can let it go. It is not our experiences. It is not our abusers. It is not our abuse that makes us stronger. We already have that strength within us. We need to stop digging up the band-aids and start digging up the roots. You've got it in you. Dig it up and find it. Yes. 
I love that. I love that. I love that. You have everything that you need within. That's big. Thank you for that. I love that. Um, I just want to make sure I didn't have them going over my questions because this has been so, so good. I completely appreciate you. So you are a trauma recovery mentor. Um, how can they get in, get in touch with you? So there's a contact form on my website, growthfromdarkness.com. They can also reach out to me on Facebook, which I probably would put out more than just two books a year if I stayed off Facebook a little bit more. <laughs> um, <laughs> I also have Instagram and TikTok and Twitter, but I'm not nearly as as, um, as frequent on those as I am on Facebook. That's wonderful. That's fantastic. And um, I think that you all should just go on her page, check her out. She is, again beautiful, beautiful individual with so many talents. <laughs> it is wonderful. Um, she's got several books. All of that is on your Facebook page as well, correct? Right. Facebook mm -hmm. and growthfromdarkness.com. Growthfromdarkness.com for sure. And I'll have that in the show notes, guys. So if you need the website, just check out the show notes. It is there. So Amanda, I know I kept you too long. <laughs> But this was so good, so needed. People, they really, really need to understand that this is something that, again, is not just happening in other countries. It is happening right here. Nine times out of 10, you've probably walked past someone who was being human trafficked and you just didn't know it. So know the signs, get out, find out more information to better understand or, you know, to help. You know, we just have to help. We need to do what we can. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. And uh, I just completely appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tamara. Ah, oh, thank you. Um, so audience, I have to say, I'm very, very clear that you can choose any podcast. Ah, oh, speaking of, what's the name of your podcast? The Survivors. Ah! Nice. So Amanda has a podcast and it's called The Survivors. So check it out. I'm pretty sure she's got some fantastic episodes on there. And, uh, you know, a lot of things that you guys can help out with it over there as well. So again, I am sure that you can choose any podcast that you like, but you chose this one. And I thank you. And I want you to remember that you matter and your story matters and have a fantastic day. Bye. I understand that nothing is more valuable than your time, so thank you for listening. Be sure to join our Facebook group, Codependent Me, and check out my website at codependentme.org. Thanks so much. Have a great day.